we are in a series of sermons on marriage. And within that series, uh, today I'm going to present the first of three sermons that deal specifically with sexuality. And I'm going to open uh, by way of offering a caveat. Uh, today I will not be presenting any material or making any conclusions that don't have widespread acceptance in Protestant churches. I have read a number of academic sources relating to the material that I'm presenting and confirmed one or two things that I was unsure about with the well-known Christian author, speaker, doctor, and sexologist, uh, Dr. Patricia Wirakun. That's not to suggest that Dr. Wirakun has signed off on this sermon. Uh, this is my work, not hers. Uh, but I am saying that I believe that there is nothing controversial in what I'm saying today. And that's important because in the next few sermons, I'm going to do something very dangerous and I need to be very careful. I'm going to presume to say what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable to God when it comes to our sexuality. And that's an extremely dangerous thing to do because it severely damages people when you get it wrong. So then my basic assumption is this. In making us male and female, God has given us both sex and the, a desire for sex. Um, both things are good, and both things are precious. And so today I want to consider libido, our God-given desire for sex. Here is the take-home message. Our libido is a beautiful, wonderful, God-given thing that is driving us to grow up, leading us to deal with ourselves, with others, and with God. So what is uh, libido? Well, libido is our sex drive. It has a number of different components. Uh, firstly, our libido includes sexual attraction to others, sometimes experienced as strong to overwhelming. Secondly, our libido includes our desire for physical, sexual pleasure leading to orgasm. This is separate to and distinct from the phenomenon I've just described. Um, it is not simply the case that we only experience desire when and only when we're in the presence of someone we're attracted to or when and only when we're in a relationship. No, actually, we have an appetite or hunger for sexual pleasure and orgasm that is independent of whether or not we're in a relationship. And thirdly and lastly, and again, distinct from the other two phenomena just described, our libido includes uh, our profound uh, desire for comforting intimacy, the desire to nurture and be nurtured, the desire to care and be cared for, the desire to protect and be protected, to know and be fully known without the fear of rejection. Um, these three desires, which can also legitimately be described as appetites and as needs, they are part of who God has made us to be. They are, on the one hand, distinct and separate, as well as being, on the other hand, overlapping and interrelating. There are two really important things to say about libido. The first thing is that it varies enormously between individuals, both in its character and in its strength. 
uh, since my teenage years and through adulthood and into ministry, any number of conversations with others have convinced me that there is enormous variety with respect to how different people experience their libido. And I find it interesting that this range just happens to be reasonably well represented by the men and women of Big Bang Theory, which also just happens to be my favorite television program. Um, just out of interest, who's familiar with Big Bang Theory here? That's reassuring. That's great. Uh, well, there's the engineer, Howard Wolowitz. He's presented to us as a young man who's basically just obsessed with sex. And he's not particularly discriminating as to how that desire might be fulfilled. He's got one thing on his mind, and actually I've had friends like that too. Uh, in contrast, Howard's friend, uh, Leonard Hofstetter, uh, who is an experimental physicist, is a more romantic man. He is driven not so much by his desire for physical sex as by his desire for romantic love. And this finds its focus in his infatuation uh, with his neighbor, Penny. Although he is smitten by Penny's stunning good looks, it is ultimately her heart that he wants. Then there's the astronomer, Raj Kuthrapali, who describes himself as a metrosexual, He's desperate for intimacy, yet deeply fearful of rejection. His need for intimacy is partially, partially fulfilled by his relationship with his dog and his friendship with Leonard, which at times resembles a squabbling husband-wife relationship more than the platonic best-friend relationship that we're expecting. And lastly, there's, well, with respect to the guys, lastly, there's the theoretical physicist, Dr. Sheldon Cooper, in contrast, he's presented as somebody who has no libido at all. He is not interested in either sexual or emotional intimacy, and he's not attracted to anyone sexually at all. Um, the thought of physical touch from another human being revolts him. These characters are fictional, but I think their depictions of human difference are accurate, and they illustrate well my point we experience our libidos differently, and statistically, 1% of us do not have one at all. 1% of us do not have a libido, um, like Dr. Sheldon Cooper. I certainly have known people who do not have a libido, at least not in any of the ways that I have characterized it. A second thing to say about libido is that in addition to varying enormously between individuals, it varies enormously within individuals. Um, it varies enormously within us, and it's influenced by many things. Physical health, age, stress, nutrition, hormones, tiredness, exercise, chronic or acute illness, disability or handicap, etc., etc. A person who is chronically tired and stressed, working 60-plus hours a week with no time for exercise or relaxation, who eats poorly, is likely to have a low libido. A person who is young, healthy, gets enough rest, exercises regularly, enjoys times of play and recreation, is not unduly stressed or anxious, and who is perhaps in the early stages of a new romantic relationship, is likely such a person is likely to have an exceedingly high libido. Uh, these realities create problems for us, whether we are single or married. Now, I'll come back to libido in a minute, but for now I'd like to change topics slightly and talk about masturbation. Masturbation is erotic play. Masturbation can be defined as manual stimulation of one's own body and genitals 
usually accompanied by sexual fantasization, leading in adults to orgasm. Uh, masturbation is common in both males and females at every stage in life, from infancy to old age. Not everybody masturbates, but statistically, most people do. 95% of males, about 80% of females. And of those that do, the frequency of this behavior might range from almost never to very regularly. And again, statistically, about 60% of adults have masturbated within the last two weeks. It is an activity that the majority of teenagers and adults, not everyone to be sure, but it is an activity that probably the majority of people find difficult to resist indefinitely. Well, now, of all private and intimate things, masturbation is perhaps the most private and most intimately personal thing a person can do. It is perhaps probably the last thing you would like to be discovered doing. Um, and this is because in this activity a person is extremely vulnerable, psychologically speaking. Now, for this reason, any negative emotional association with the word or with the practice will be experienced as particularly powerful. Any discomfort um, and anxiety um, uh, uh, might be provoked whenever it is discussed, and I regret any discomfort that this talk is uh, causing uh, today. Uh, but there is a reason why we need to talk about it occasionally. And that is because actually we, we need to answer the question, uh, is masturbation a sin? Well, the Bible does not mention it directly. There are a handful of passages that are indirectly relevant, but the activity is not directly addressed. Given the fact that the Bible is not shy about talking very directly in certain places about unacceptable sexual activity, and given that masturbation is not a recent invention, we are on safe ground in affirming that masturbation is not a sin. After the close of the New Testament, the early church fathers had nothing to say about it. It didn't concern them. From about the 4th century onwards, with the rise of the monastic movement, and many Christians becoming monks and nuns and choosing to, to live out in, in isolation or in communities of, of singles under a vow of celibacy, there is some discussion of, of the activity. And the question under review being, does masturbation break a vow of celibacy? And the historic answer was no. A call to celibacy was considered quite a different thing to the gift of of continence. And indeed, occasional masturbation was considered safe and normal for monks and nuns. Through the Middle Ages, it was likewise not mentioned much nor considered abnormal. This changed, however, in the early 1700s, when in London a tract was published, a pamphlet, pamphlets and tracts being the internet and social media of the day, and the tract was entitled Onania, or the heinous sin of self-pollution. <clears throat> it was at this point that the word masturbation was introduced into the English language. The pamphlet described all kinds of horrific medical conditions that came about as a direct result of masturbation. Masturbation sucked the life out of you, killing you slowly. 
is what the pamphlet said, to put it simply. In actual fact, the tract itself was junk mail, no pun intended. It was actually advertising material, a pamphlet to get you to buy expensive antidotes that the doctor responsible was peddling. Now, I'm impressed by his marketing genius, as evil as this was. However, the tract kind of took hold of the collective English-speaking psyche and put the fear of God into us, so to speak. And for the next 250 years, the English-speaking world took it for granted that if you played with it, you'd go blind. Attaching fear and guilt to the practice by the truckload. Later in that century, the practice attracted the death penalty in New Haven, Connecticut. And later, also in America, Dr. Kellogg's would invent cornflakes as a cure for masturbation. It really took until the mid-20th century for the medical profession to realize and categorically state that masturbation is not physically harmful for you in any way, and that indeed it is behaviorally normal for human beings, irrespective of age, sex, or marital status, and therefore can be regarded as healthy. Today, no Protestant denominations view it as sinful, although the Roman Catholic Church believes the practice to be, uh, quote, an intrinsically and seriously disordered act, unquote. It considers that the Roman Catholic Church considers masturbation to be um, the deliberate, well, it says the deliberate use of the gift of sexual pleasure outside of the purpose of procreation and unification of husband and wife uh, within, as they say, the sacrament of marriage that frustrates the natural order and goal of sexuality. Uh, that is a well-reasoned argument but I believe it misunderstands both the Bible and biology. So it is important to take the time to normalize masturbation. I'm not advocating it. I'm not promoting it. I am teaching that it is normal and acceptable to God. But if your conscience won't allow you to do it, then don't do it. It is important, of course, to remember that just because something isn't inherently sinful, that doesn't mean it's never sinful. It is not sinful to drive a car, but you can drive sinfully. Masturbation does not give us license to fantasize about sinful things. And occasionally, masturbation becomes a problem when people feel addicted to it. That is to say, they're acting compulsively. And then there's pornography. That's, that's a different thing. I'll talk about that on another day. There is no question that masturbation can be sinful. But churches that teach that masturbation is inherently sinful are guilty of false teaching. And false teaching creates unnecessary guilt, shame, and fear. And from there, hostility between people and neurotic behavior. Now, with respect to the single life, occasional masturbation can be a satisfying way to scratch an itch that, for most adults, cannot be ignored indefinitely. How occasional is occasional? Well, obviously, that will vary enormously, both within and between individuals. And so there are a range of acceptable answers. And indeed, self-control 
is needed with respect to sexual fantasy. We all fantasize. I fantasize about every conceivable aspect of my life. Fantasy is part of what it means to be human. But when we fantasize sexually, we need to make sure that what we're fantasizing about is honoring to God and neighbor. However, as adult singles are usually only too aware, masturbation doesn't satisfy other appetites. It may indeed satisfy a need for sexual pleasure and orgasm, but it by no means does it satisfy our desire for emotional intimacy and our desire for shared sexual experiences. Singleness is done well by individuals who are able to acknowledge that actually they cannot know that pleasure, the pleasure of actual sexual congress, but they can know other pleasures denied to married people, such as the much greater liberty they have with respect to prayer and devotions, travel, work, leisure time, church involvement, and the use of their money. Singleness is done well by individuals who are good at developing a network of deep friendships as well as family friendships that satisfy their need for emotional and spiritual intimacy, their need for acceptance and inclusion, their need for fellowship and companionship. But the single life calls people to modify the expression of their libido. Indeed, our libidos forces, force us to grow up in many ways. It drives us into relationship with others, Leonard to Penny, Howard to Bernadette, Dr. Amy Farrah Fowler to Sheldon, returning to Big Bang Theory. It drives us into growing up in the form of needing to acquire self-control. One of the things I find interesting in Big Bang Theory is the way in which all of the men must modify very significantly the way in which they express their libidos as they come into the confining, hard realities of a real relationship with a real woman. None of their romantic relationships could survive except that they are willing to master, correct, and change how they express their libido. Howard must learn faithfulness in his heart as well as in his life if he's to hold on to Bernadette. Leonard must deal with the fact, fact that Penny actually can't make him happy. Raj must overcome his poor social skills and his stupefying fear of rejection. And Sheldon must learn to lovingly accommodate Amy's sex drive even though he doesn't actually have one himself. So then... Libido, in the context of singleness, forces us to grow up, and libido, in the context of marriage, forces us to grow up. And that leads us into discussing the most common sexual problem for married couples, and that problem is the problem of desire differential. Uh, desire differential um, is when the differential in libido between husband and wife is so great that it causes tension and that from that tension, behaviors result that make the problem worse, not better, leading to a relationship in crisis. In other words, it's important that I make this point clear. The desire differential is not the fact that that the, your libido is out of sync with your partner. That's just a fact of life. That, that just happens. Desire differential is a problem when the behaviors that spring out of that differential make the problem worse, not better. 
Now, <clears throat> given that our libido can and does fluctuate through the day, through the week, through the month, through the years, we can perhaps say that our libido places us perhaps in five different categories with respect to readiness for sex in marriage. Moving from low to high, here are those five categories. Firstly, stage one, uh, not, really, sorry, not at all interested, not open to offers, uh, will rebut even the faintest hint of sex, finds the thought of sex disgusting. This is absolutely no. Stage two, not really interested. The idea of it is not disgusting, but it's not appealing. Will decline any offers, but gently deflects the suggestion of sex. This is kind of sorry, but no. Stage three is neither interested nor uninterested, the idea is not especially appealing and wouldn't have initiated it, but might be open to it. This is maybe. Stage four is interested, but will not initiate. Waits for the suggestion or invitation, but is open to it once it arrives. This is yes, thank you. And then stage five is interested and willing to initiate actively seeking to experience sexual intercourse at the earliest possible opportunity, this is, yes, please. Now, here's the thing. All of us vary through stages one to five, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the months, throughout the years. Sometimes a person might be in stage one and two for years. So, differential of desire is a fact of life. In every marriage, there are likely to be days when one partner is stage one. Absolutely no. At the same time as the other is in stage five. Yes, please. However, as already said, uh, desire differential or double D is a marital problem when a pattern of behaviors set in that make things worse, not better. Worst case scenario Double D can destroy a marriage, leading to divorce. Now, I understand that uh, desire differential um, uh, is a problem for 90% of couples at one time or another. Um, and that for about 60% of couples, the problem is that the male wants significantly more sex than the female, whereas in about 40% of cases, it is the female who wants more sex than the male. And I understand that over the decades of married life, it is possible for the situation to reverse. So that, you know, perhaps for one decade, the, the man was the pursuer, but actually a few decades later on, actually it's, it's the woman who is the pursuer, or vice versa. The situation can reverse. Now, if a man is getting less sex from his wife than he wants, he is likely to pursue his wife in the way that men instinctively believe that they'd like to be pursued, which is sexually. Explicit invitations, sexualized behavior. This works for men, but not generally for women. In fact, usually women find this either comical or repulsive or both. If the woman is not feeling loved and secure in that relationship, it makes matters worse, not better reinforcing in her mind that she's only valued as a sex toy. The problem worsens. As this happens, the man feels more and more rejected. 
Now, remember, irrespective of what a man knows in his head, it's very difficult for a man to feel loved if his wife is not wanting to have sex with him as often as he wants. Feeling rejected, he is likely to also feel angry and resentful, and his basic instinct will be to distance himself from his wife. In other words, a man who is not getting as much sex as he wants, sooner or later, is strongly tempted to be less loving to his wife, who in, ten, who in turn feels less loved and secure in the relationship, and so in turn wants to have sex with her husband even less than she did before. A runaway negative feedback loop has been established, a death spiral. If a, if a woman is getting less sex from her husband than she wants, she typically reasons that her husband is not feeling secure in the relationship. She will instinctively pursue her husband the way she would like to be pursued, which is by way of listening, attention, affection. This works for women, but not generally for men. If the man is fearing, for any reason, intimacy with his wife, his wife's behavior now makes him feel even more claustrophobic and he backs away even faster. What I want us to see is that whether the pursuer is male or female, the pursuer's instinctive reaction is usually the exact opposite of what is needed. Whether it is the man or the woman who is the pursuer, desire differential usually leads to the following. It leads to hurt feelings and feeling unloved. It leads to deep frustration and grief that one's marriage relationship is not meeting one's needs. It leads to arguments and fights. One aspect to be particularly careful about is that when we're joined to someone with a different libido to our own, which is, of course, the vast majority of marriages, sooner or later we will be tempted to contemptuously criticize the other person. We might label them as frigid or a cold fish or sexually inhibited if their libido is less than ours. We might label them as a pervert or sex crazy or disgusting or one-track mind or nymphomaniac or slut or even worse if their libido is greater than ours. Well, what should be done? Uh, first, when DD becomes a problem... Understand that actually it's par for the course. It's, how God, it's, it's part of how God has made us. It is a normal part of marriage. Marriage calls us to modify the expression of our libido. Second, talk about it and pray about it lovingly and calmly. This is the cardinal rule. Don't call each other names. It is easy to feel contempt for someone whose libido is different to ours. But the real truth is that almost all of the time, they are normal and we are normal. It's just a different normal. Above all, resist the temptation to insult each other. Thirdly, and if you'll allow me one of my generalizations, it is generally true that wives need to feel loved and secure in a relationship in order to want to have sex and that husbands generally need to have sex in order to feel loved and secure in a relationship. These needs, quite obviously, are not only opposite and in opposition, that they are in conflict. Husbands and wives, therefore, need to carefully consider and talk lovingly about their own needs and to understand that their spouse will experience their needs differently. New husbands 
especially, needs to understand that their wives need to feel loved and cherished and safe all of the time, not just 30 minutes before bedtime. Fourth, when two people go for a run, for a jog together, because they enjoy jogging and they want to jog together as a shared fun experience, the implied contract is that they'll both run at the pace of the slower runner. And that's because they have to. If the faster runner pushes the pace, sooner or later he or she will be running alone. In the same way, the frequency of sexual intercourse within any given marriage at any given time must be set by the partner with the lower libido. And it is usually a mistake to have sex unless both partners are at stage three or above. By the way, uh, the average frequency for sex within marriage is 54 times a year. That is roughly once a week. But there is huge variation. Sexologists suggest talking to a health professional, uh, such as your GP, uh, if that rate falls below 10 times a year. Uh, married life calls people to modify the expression of their libido. But the most important point of, po uh, most important point of all is that in order to save DD turning into a divorce, the pursuer, whether the pursuer is male or female, the pursuer must stop all pursuing behaviors because it is always counterproductive. Move in the opposing spirit. Accept in the face of rejection. Forgive in the face of insult. Let go in the face of fear. Grow in self-control. Whether we are male or female, young or old, married or single, our libido, our sex drive, is part of God's call on our lives. Whether we are single or married, our libidos drive us into fellowship and companionship with others in ways that honor God and others. That in turn calls us to modify our desires and our behaviors and our expectations and to look honestly at our priorities. And in turn, that drives us to renegotiate when we have to renegotiate within relationships because every relationship requires regular renegotiation. Most importantly of all, our libidos call us to Jesus. Because whether we are married or single, we must deal with the fact that he is the only one who can satisfy our desires with good things. The only one who can actually meet all of our needs. Whether we are married or single, our libidos call us to Jesus, the one who gives us love for others, the one who gives us self-control, the one who answers for us the big questions of our heart. Am I loved? Am I accepted? Am I adequate? Well, so may the Lord be with us all. Amen.